Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. And we are back. Hello, everybody. Ciao a tutti. This is the Wild Wild Podcast. And unlike last time, I'm going to remember to start straight away by saying hello. This is Adrian Smith. And with me, as ever, is Rod Barnett. Hello, Rod. Hello, Adrian. How are you doing? Well, I already kind of know how you're doing. So. <laughs> I'm totally fine. I'm getting more professional now, too. Look. Uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah, I uh, I got COVID again. I mean, like, we all just kind of moved on, didn't we? And like, that was all such a long time ago and everyone's forgotten about it. But but uh, no, it's still around. And here I am. But uh, anyway, I'm fine. So maybe this will be the last episode. Oh, that'd be bad, wouldn't it? I should. Oh, don't say that. That's no. <laughs> I'll cut that out. Uh, or, or will I? Mm. No, no, anyway. no. No, no. Leave, leave it Just, in because then it's, I don't, yeah. then it's failed prophecy if we're lucky. Yeah. So. <laughs> yes. Of, yeah. Uh, of like you know, like Bronx Warriors and Vic Moreau. Um, <laughs> Speak, oh, speaking God, of. Yes. <laughs> oh, yes, I wondered. I wondered if that was going to be a topic of conversation. I figured. Yeah, have that's going to. Gonna, you know. Yeah, we'll have to talk about that. Um, so, Rod, what have you been up to since last we spoke on the podcast? Uh, podcasting. Uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah. You've you've had at least fifteen episodes out since our last one, I think. Oh, I don't. Th- I don't know about that. I just finished editing <laughs> one that'll be out here in a couple of days. That's uh, uh, a new Beyond Nashy episode with uh, Troy and I being re- being joined again by uh, the uh, the illustrious Bob Sargent as we talk about. Uh, well, <clears throat> a movie with a few Nashy connections, but. Mostly, it's just an incredibly weird, trashy film from Eurocine in uh, from 1970, uh, Orloff and the Invisible Monster, which um, nice, yeah. It's a we have a we have a very long discussion. The episode turned turned out to be about two hours and 45 minutes long, but that includes a lot of emails. So thank goodness. But yeah. is uh, the Invisible Monster a chimp? 
Uh, you know what? It does turn. Th- this is a spoiler, folks. So you know, if you're if you're a, pur- <laughs> if, sure you're a cinema, if you're a cinema purist, <laughs> hands over your ears so that you're not going to hear this. But it does turn out to be an invisible gorilla or ape man. So keep that in mind. Oh, oh I didn't mean to spoil it for you. There we go. Oh uh, well, you know, honestly, how can you spoil a movie with the with the qualities of Orloff <laughs> and the Invisible Monster, or, or Orloff against the Invisible Monster? It's funny. Um, in the uh, my conversation with Luigi Cozzi, he we did actually end up talking about Mister Super Invisible. Oh my God, are you kidding? No. How did that no, happen? He, well, if you haven't, okay. Well, hey, if you haven't listened. Do oh, I, have, I, have, I haven't heard it yet. I need to listen to yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. So that for anyone else who uh, hasn't heard that yet, the um, yeah, we talk we uh, towards the end of the conversation. I ask him about his relationship with Antonio Margariti, and uh, yeah, surprisingly, Mister Super Invisible is the film that comes up in conversation. So, oh my goodness. Okay, got to listen yeah. to that today. Worth right. listening. Um, the sound quality isn't great, but it's hopefully you can you know. It's it's manageable, but anyway, yeah, it was really fun to uh, to actually talk to him. The conversation at first was a bit slow, and I was a bit worried about how well it was going to go and how. But he's got pretty good English, I think. But I wasn't sure if he could just not hear me very well or whatever. And so the the answers were kind of two or three words, and then silence. And I thought, oh, this is going to be rubbish. But actually, once we got going, he was really chatty, and it was really fun. Yeah, um, we had to stop yeah. a couple of we had to stop a couple of times because he had customers in the shop. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it was it was really great, uh, and it's making me think now about other other people I need to try and track down and uh, interview for the podcast as well. So, if anyone's got any leads uh, out there, and anybody you think we should try and get on here whilst they're still around, then uh, that would be maybe that's something I could work on as a side project. Um, but anyway, so we are into our sort of dystopian future, speculative future, post-apocalypse type thing. And this film is arguably the highlight and is only the second one in. So it's <laughs> <laughs> a bit of a worry. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I mean, I see. I know what you're talking about. I know why you're saying that, because this is an incredibly entertaining film. But yeah. I don't, I don't know. I'm wondering what revisiting these movies is going to feel like. Uh, oh, you know, long term as we go through them, this is going to be. Yeah. It's going to be an interesting experiment at the very least. Yes, that's it. Yeah, this this is. Um, I don't know if these films were necessarily designed to be watched in close succession. Um, well, then they shouldn't but, have released them all with, I know, they within were, just that's a few true. years of each other. I mean, yeah, because we're basically in 1982 now. And we will finish the season in 1984. So, yeah, they're pretty much back to back to back. Yep. So, uh, yeah, but we are talking about 1990 Bronx Warriors.
Oh, my son heard me listening to the soundtrack album the other day. This came out for Record Store Day about 10 years ago oh. by um, Death Waltz Records. So I bought it at the time. Very, I stood in, the, I stood in line outside the record shop to hope that they didn't run out of copies and then like two years later I went back to the same record shop and they still had spare copies in the racks because like <laughs> I'm the only person in my town that wants to buy a copy of the Bronx Warriors soundtrack um, but I was, uh, yeah. <laughs> I was playing it the other day and my son is doing music at college and he's always he's, um, he's doing music technology so he's always listening out for things he can sample and uh, somebody had mentioned how he should listen to Italian prog. So yes. lately, lately I've been just playing in bits of film music, and and uh, then he's putting it into stuff that he's making. So the other day he heard me listening to this, and then immediately went and started sampling it and turning it into something. So if he's finished that by the end, by the time I edit this, I'll stick it on at the end of the episode, Excellent. like a kind of d- dance remix of the theme. But yeah, this is. Uh, it's got great we'll come to the music later when we go through all the everybody behind this but yeah it's a very uh very good just sort of distinctive theme um but anyway yeah bronx warriors kind of a trilogy but technically not a trilogy it's not a trilogy yeah the enzo castellari I, i watched an interview with him where he said that he only thinks of them a trilogy because they were all made with the same producer but um, basically, Bronx Warriors was, was written and designed to be a one-off. And then he immediately went on to do um, The New Barbarians, which is not in any way a sequel. And, I mean, we should probably do The New Barbarians on the podcast as well, because that is a post-apocalypse film. Yeah, and it's, I, thir- and it's thoroughly entertaining as hell. Too, yeah, so. and then it, but whilst he was making that, Bronx Warriors was out and was a massive hit. And so that's why they said, oh, well, let's make a sequel. So... Escape from the Bronx came about purely because this one was so successful. This yep. wasn't designed to have a sequel. So they're thought of as being a trilogy, but it's technically just two films. If you think and, of tr- Yeah, it's think- technically two films and The New Barbarians, yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so Bronx Warriors, what is your history with this film? Do you remember when you first saw it? Oh my goodness, I think... <clears throat> well, no, I know for a fact. I, I, I back-checked. I... Um, I read about this film uh, for a while before I was able to actually see it. And, of course, the original way I saw it was on a doopy bootleg sometime in the 90s. You know, it's vague. I don't remember exactly when. But the the point at which... And, and I, I, I loved it then. I, I, I knew it was an incredibly entertaining and, and, and uh, well-strung-together piece of entertainment uh back then but then when it came out on uh dvd in the early 2000s here in the states that's when i wrapped my arms and legs around it and said you're mine i love you so much yeah and so that's probably you know it was it was a slow gradual realization of uh how this movie is both life-changing, life-affirming, and <laughs> if you try to take it from me, I will scream bloody murder and, yeah. and, and bite at you. So, I was, um, you know, as I've said many times, quite unaware of a lot of European cult cinema. And then about 12 years or so ago, Shameless, the uh, DVD company over here, brought out the Bronx Warriors tin, like a collector's tin with a skull on the front mm-hmm. with the three DVDs in. 
and I actually won that in a competition on oh. a forum. Yeah. So there used to be a forum um, that would do competitions every week, and it was usually the prizes were usually from Shameless or Arrow. And I won tons of stuff on that. <laughs> I don't know why. I just got really good at winning their competitions. Cool. So, um, yeah, so I won that. So that was the first time I saw it. And obviously, I, I loved I loved them. And that's why I, I bought the soundtrack album. Um, then I bought a Betamax uh, copy. So I've got that somewhere, a, a UK Betamax release, um, which I have signed by Enzo Castellari. Cool. I have I have met Enzo Castellari about ten years ago. Um, I am I am envious. Of yeah, I mean, I, I didn't it didn't go as well as I'd hoped. Basically, this was um, back when I was eagerly trying to interview everybody left, right, and center, and um, I'd arranged to do an interview with him at the Cine Access conference in London, where they where he was the guest of honor, and they were doing a screening of Bronx Warriors, and so I'd arranged that we would do the interview during the screening oh that was yeah. that was you kind of the plan this story before yeah oh yeah. have i that yeah didn't, yeah that didn't go it, it didn't, didn't go work well, out yeah. no because i i like he just sat there and watched it <laughs> actually he was on his phone which made me laugh it must be the only time i've seen you know people being on their phone in the cinema is really annoying but when it's the director of the movie you have to worry um but yeah so in the end i had to leave and he was still there, so the interview never happened. But I did get to say hello to him before the film, and he's uh, signed that thing for me. And uh, I took a photo of him uh, as well, which I, I'll tweet out at some point. But yeah, so yeah, so like you, the film's kind of life changing. It's sort of once you see it, you're hooked in. Yeah. I even last year I got the um, the company that put out this book, which I'm going to refer to a lot in this season uh pulse video the french blu-ray dvd restoration company did a book last year called after the world ends when post-apocalyptic movies were telling the future and uh, Mm -hmm. they put this this book was out on uh kickstarter last year and i got the book with the uh, end game soundtrack on vinyl and cd and it's got the end game artwork on the on the front of the book um, but I also got a T-shirt as well, so I, <laughs> I've got a 1990 The Bronx Warriors in French T-shirt, which like, like that's the I feel like that's the ultimate obscure. <laughs> if I'm walking around wearing that, nobody's going to come up to me and go, "Hey, Bronx Warriors!" Like because you know, not only is it is a film no one's heard of, it's in French, but uh, it it pleases me anyway. <laughs> it as well it should yes yeah so um so yes like you this film has had made a big impact on me uh and i've loved it ever since in fact although weirdly the only thing i don't have is the blu-ray i've still mm. just got the dvd the dvd tin but i know it is out on blu-ray in america it hasn't been released over here which sort of surprises me that no one's done it but i but as far as i know it's on blu-ray in the states yeah, the uh, Blue Underground put uh, put it and its sequel and the New Barbarians all out on Blu-ray at the same time, mm-hmm. which allowed them to kind of connect a bunch of the uh, the extras that are all, that are across all okay. three discs, which is nice because that means that there are you know there are interviews with uh, Castellari and the the film's producer and uh, several people involved in making the movies, and they kind of carry across the uh, the discs where they're focusing on each individual movie. It's pretty pretty great. And Castellari yeah. actually did a... Castellari and his uh, his son, who was uh, 
who was involved well he was he would spend summers on his father's film sets and so he was tw- <laughs> he was 12 when they made the Bronx oh, Warriors wow. and so he was okay. there for a good chunk of the filming of this and he's part of the commentary track as well along with David Gregory oh, right. and so it's a it's a pretty darn good uh commentary track and it's just I, I'm so glad that you know I'm always happy when these movies of this vintage and type get that kind of treatment and we're actually able to get you know, in-depth thoughts from the people who made these movies. It's great. Mm. Oh, I need to get those. You've, you've oh. convinced me. Oh, it's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Honestly, if you, it, it'll only enhance your love of these movies. It's wonderful. <laughs> they are available. If anyone in the UK is listening who doesn't have the DVDs, they are available on Prime Video over mm-hmm. here, I believe. Um, but yeah, so unlike some of the films we're going to get to later on in the run, these films are pretty much very easy to see wherever you are um so enzo castellari let's talk about him shall we as we just oh, mentioned him i could talk not, about him for days yes yeah this is not um this is not his first mention on the podcast we of course did the heroin busters uh not that long ago yeah uh which was great he also had some involvement in the humanoid which we did back in season one um, but apart from like those films, do you have sort of favorites of his other movies? I mean, he's done lots of great ones, obviously. But... I have so many favorites. First of all, um, once again, I'm going to take the opportunity to champion uh, one of his early films from 1968, Johnny Hamlet, which is one of my favorite of his spaghetti westerns, and it's oh, one that's yes. very difficult to see. Um, you know, as easy yeah. as it is to see any gun can play, which he made the year before, I think Johnny yeah. Hamlet is one that really deserves a lot more attention. And I'm hoping that eventually one day it gets some kind of really yeah. wonderful release. Um, Kill and them also, all and come, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's yeah, incredible. I was going to say kill them all and come back alone. is such mm-hmm. a great title for a spaghetti Western. Oh, it's, it's a good, it's a good it's film. A fabulous too. title. Yeah. Uh, Eagles over London, Cold Eyes of Fear, love them. But it really, uh, the, the where I feel like we get to what I feel is his. He seems to be able to do almost anything he wants. You know, it, it, he's not a, he's not someone who's bound by a particular genre by any stretch. But once he started making those crime films that he was doing in the mid seventies, like High Crime and Street Law, The Big Racket, and Heroin Busters, you just you're you're, you're you know. All four of those are astonishingly good movies. Uh, I mean, they're fantastic films. Uh, then you get, you know, his his one of his, you know, one of his late entry spaghetti's Kioma, which is yeah. a, a brilliant film. And then the film that everybody's going to know the title of, at the very least, right there at the end of the seventies, he makes the Inglorious Bastards, and that's yeah, the, which you know, is really good. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But you know, I'm also a huge fan of the stuff. Well, I, well, I, 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 I love and I champion House by the Edge of the Lake, which you know has been released now on Blu-ray. So there's there are more people who are aware of it, and it's it's very strange nature. It's a it's well worth checking out. Oh no, I haven't seen that one. Oh really? House by the Edge of the Lake. It's. Yeah. Uh, I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to say. Okay. I think I think you will find it very interesting. The 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 less you know about it going in, the more intriguing it it is. It's a it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a, a, a of an onion unraveling in front of you. It's pretty interesting. Okay, he also, of course, did uh, like everyone did in the seventies, um, a sexy period comedy, mm-hmm. um, the adventures, 
of the loves of Scaramouche, I think it is, uh, mm-hmm. with Ursula Andress. So, uh, which I have, which I have I, that's one of the few of his I've not seen. No. <laughs> no, I well, wonder why. Yeah. yeah, we all know how uh, how Italian <laughs> how Italian comedies play in your house. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they play to an empty room. Yes. Um, and he did the the last shark, which we no, we almost got on Blu-ray from Severin, and then they had a cease and desist from Universal. Oh, yeah. I, I believe. But um, I just Wait saw on Facebook, yeah, wasn't I mean, it the was that the last shark? Is that the one that's the Jaws ripoff? Oh yes, it, d- believe me, yes, yes, it is. Um, I, yeah, but I did just see on Facebook that I think there's a French company that's about to put it out on Blu-ray. So uh, that might be worth, that might be the only, if they get as far as being able to release it before they get a cease and desist, then uh, we yeah, might get that uh, on Blu-ray. Yeah, I, I don't know. But I was, anyway. I was thinking that it actually, it actually had been, had been released, but no, I'm thinking of, there's the, the film Cruel Jaws, which used some yes. footage from it and Deep Blood. Did yeah, the same Cruel thing. Jaws was the one where Severin did actually release it. And yeah. then got the cease and desist and had to stop it, but people did actually manage to buy it first. Whereas the last shark, they got it got pulled before they even pressed it. I think, mm. but uh, but yeah, it's, I mean, obviously, just the whole you know that whole area of just ripping off whatever is popular, and that's exactly why we're here with the Bronx Warriors. Mm-hmm. Which in the interview I watched, he said that it was based on Escape from New York and Mad Max. Um, whereas there's an interview, which like there's a bit of a elephant in the room there, which of course is the Warriors. Oh but, yeah, yeah, um, very true. There's a there's an interview in this book with the scriptwriter who does reference the Warriors as being also you know because obviously it is. I mean he has, mm-hmm. he's got to tra- he's got to travel across New York and fight different um, different gangs. Yeah, different gangs. So that's clearly the warriors and even obviously the clues in the name but um but yeah so yeah so we like enzo castellari um and in terms of other people that we might want to mention who were involved with the film I and mean, obviously a dardano uh blah, i can't speak <laughs> dardano Sacchetti. yeah in the book they interviewed dardano Sacchetti, who wrote uh bronx warriors and escape from the bronx and Exterminators of the Year 3000, and Warriors of the Year 2072. So, you know, he liked his futuristic action films with dates in the title. I have and, a lot of um, time for him as a screenwriter because he, yeah. was involved, he was involved in a lot of movies that I really enjoy, all the way back to supposedly contributing to the stories for Cat and Nine Tales and Bay of Blood. So. Oh, right. Wow. That is quite a heritage. Yeah, yeah, and um, so yeah, so um, these three, the three films that Enzo Casolari did with the producer, who was uh, Fabrizio De Angelis, and it was his idea. He loved New York, and he loved the Bronx, and this idea of it being a really violent place. And he also loved the Warriors. So it was him that said to Dardano Sacchetti that he wanted basically he wanted him to write a movie like the Warriors set in the Bronx. So, <laughs> so it's pretty ba- pretty simple, uh, which is why it's called Bronx Warriors. It's about as basic as it gets. But then I think maybe later on, it, it, those other elements of, of Mad Max and Escape from New York and things came in a little bit later. Because this is not set in some kind of post-apocalypse. It's just a, a world where law and order in the Bronx has basically been written off and the police have just 
and just leaving them leaving them all to it you guys just do what you want kill yourselves we don't care and so the gangs have taken over which is where we've got the riders and uh the tigers is that right yeah and I yeah think. there are a few other gangs as well and then there's some the smaller gangs ones, but yeah know. they they patrol and the riders are made up mainly of hell's angels like real hell's Actual angels hell's angels yes <laughs> which is great there's some bits where they try and get some of the hell's angels to act uh which is pretty funny yeah, it but, doesn't uh, quite work, but it does add something yeah. to the film. So, and they've got, but they've got great bikes. But have you, did you notice? Um, it's only the actors who get glowing skulls on their bikes, and all the Hell's Angels don't have skulls on their bikes, which I guess was for budgetary <laughs> reasons, but sort of seems a shame. It does and, seem a shame, or that that, or you know, perhaps the the Hell's Angels are like, no, you're not messing with my bike at all. Yeah, exactly. There's one shot as well where they're all riding along, and all of the skulls glow except one guy's as clearly the batteries run out but they're just like oh we haven't got time just keep filming <laughs> um oh, Lord. but yeah well so the the leader of the riders is trash and trash is um i think we've had a trash can before haven't we uh played by thomas Millian. yeah, yeah that, that back in the crime the crime season yeah and here we've got trash played by an actor credited as Mark Gregory, mm-hmm. but his actual real name was Marco Di Gregorio. And if you read on the IMDb, it says he was only 17, which is very hard to believe. Yeah, um, but yeah, that's partly know. because it isn't true. Yeah, it's, I, it's I, not, yeah. It, he, was eight, he was 18, which is still very young to be that big. <laughs> mm-hmm. And quite a responsibility to, to lead a film at that age is quite amazing well that i mean his story um you know if, if you if you know if you know his story it is rather tragic he did only yeah. do a few movies he, by, by the late 80s he had decided that just doing that being a movie actor was just not for him and so he went back to his first love which was painting apparently his father was a painter and an artist yeah. so he went back to italy and and uh, did that but he kind of lost his way had some had some real mental health struggles over the over his life yeah. and, he also and, got scammed and like lost his house and everything yeah, yeah. he eventually died about 10 years ago mm-hmm. of some kind of overdose in this little town where he'd moved to just outside Rome and basically had a bit of a pauper's funeral there was no family or anything yeah there's a there's a, there's a you can see a photo of his uh, his I guess you would call it headstone there in Italy and it's uh, oh you found that as well I, yeah, I found that yeah. too yeah it's on the uh, I'll put a link to this in the show notes but the the story of Mark Gregory is on the Cinema Italiano database um, which is worth having a look at where they've done a lot of research because for a long time people just didn't know what happened to him he kind of disappeared mm-hmm. but yeah they they kind of dug up the, the rather tragic story. And um, there are two different stories about how he got cast in this film. The one I'd heard was that Enzo Castellari went to the same gym, apparently. That was the story I'd heard, that they just saw him in the gym. Um, but the other story is that his girlfriend sent a photo in to the casting when, they, when she heard about them casting this film. She sent his picture in, and he was chosen. So which of those stories is true, I'm not entirely sure, but... I like the idea of Enzo Casolari pumping iron 
down the gym in, in downtown Rome and then spotting this massive 17-year-old <laughs> and thinking, hmm, just who I'm looking for. Yeah, I think that... Um, I, I, I hope this is not considered to be in bad taste, but the idea... We should we should put forth that one of the one of the things that may have contributed to his uh, his mental health problems is I think that he he may have been fighting his uh, his sexuality throughout his life. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it it seems pretty pretty clear when you talk to people like Fred Williamson and other people that it was you know they they knew he, they knew he was gay. And uh, one of the problems they had was trying to get him to present himself on screen in a way that did not look, at times, slightly effeminate. And you can, oh, really? Yeah, and you okay. can and you can spot some of those problems. Uh, Fred Williamson in an interview, specific, you know, specifies how it took a while to get him to kind of uh, have him find 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 a way to to show him how to uh, walk, you know, walk across to you know. The, there's that scene where they're um, they're out there at that. Uh, you know, beside the river there in the Bronx. Oh and, yeah, that's a great where, scene. Where he walks across, and and uh, Williamson talks about how they really had to spend a lot of time getting him to walk in a way where he did not look effeminate. Oh, I and, see. Yeah, and to yeah. try and make him be more macho. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And so, okay. uh, I, I like I say, I don't. I, they don't. I see nowhere anyone talking about that as a contributing factor. And and mm. you know, who knows? Maybe maybe they're a bit off base, but. Uh, it is still one of those things where you see someone who had such a who had such potential, you know, for being someone. I mean, he did make, you know, yeah, he did a few other films. Ten, he did about ten films all told. Yeah, and uh, whether or not you think of him as a, a particularly good actor, it, it, he still, you know, presents very effectively on screen. And it really is a shame that you know, for whatever reason, that that didn't that didn't work out. He didn't. He didn't stick around in the in the industry, um, and I I just I, I I find I find it sad, but at the same time I'm I am glad that we do have, you know the you know the three Thunder Warrior films, uh, which I've only <laughs> seen the first of, which is pretty entertaining. Uh, yeah, he's well cast in that. He's playing an American Indian in that, and he looks the part. Um, mm. But the uh, the 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 tragedy of his life, in you know dying dying. Far too young. I mean, I think he was eight. I think he was only forty-eight. Right. And it it, it is a shame, but um, still, the, uh, the 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 tragedies. That's not the only you know tragic actor story in this film. Well, uh, quite yeah. yes. Um, unfortunately, yeah, unfortunately, so um, which we we did mention a bit at the beginning, but yeah, basically, this is as far as I know, this was. Vic Moreau's final completed film. Uh, yeah, yeah. Before he, and, uh, yeah. There, there, there is a question. There's another film that came out in '82. I'm not sure. Yes, yeah, so Japan, one was shot Japanese. Other, yeah, know? he he appears to have been in some kind of Japanese war film that doesn't on the IMDb. It doesn't have an English title, so I don't know if it yeah. only ever got released in Japan. Um, and Vic Moreau had done a few Enzo Casolari films before this, so they obviously, you know, he obviously felt he was very reliable and was was very good at what he did and what he brought to it. But then, yeah, sadly, the year after this, well, he went straight from this to shooting the Twilight Zone movie, and of course, um, he he died tragically died, yeah. in that helicopter accident. Oh so. man! A few years ago, I think when I learned about that, I I read there's a book about the whole thing. Uh, which covers all the court, the trial and everything, and I read it, 
And it's such a depressing story. Yeah. It, it really is. is. It's so sad. And um, there was a documentary at some point on American television which actually showed the footage. Oh, yeah. I, I remember seeing so, the footage at the yeah, time. Yeah, it's actually know. on YouTube. There's a clip from that documentary where they go through and show you the... Because it was obviously being filmed from, like, five different angles. Mm-hmm. And that footage all got was all evidence in court. And some of it's in this documentary, so you can actually see it. Oh, it's oh, it's awful, yeah. and I regret I regret watching it, but you know I did anyway <laughs> because you was you would I suppose. But yeah, really sad um, that Vic Moreau was killed with two children shooting the sequence for the Twilight Zone movie when there was an accident with a helicopter. Yeah, it was pretty bad. Um, but he's a great you know he's got great screen presence. He plays a good. Mm-hmm. Bad guy, he's a good baddie in this. He's a, um, he's a, he was a great, he was a very effective actor. He's one of those guys yeah. who who has a, a very memorable face. Of course, you know he. Yes. For, for, for people like us, we'll you know we'll we'll remember him for films like this, and also you know Bad News Bears and Humanoids from the Deep, and just a lot of films like that. But I mean, he you know he was in the Asphalt Jungle, and actually you know as a as a as a knife wielding hoodlum. And that's where mm. Castellari first saw him, and was so. And that's one of the reasons why he was so excited to be able to start casting him in a couple of films when he was able to, because he he had firm memories of him from that from from that movie, that small role there, and yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, a, a good was, solid actor. Yeah, and a very familiar face on American TV as well. Yeah, yeah. like pretty much every show. Had him pop up in it at least once. It seems oh, he was—he like. was a bit of a TV star in the '60s. Yeah. He had his own—he had his own TV series called Combat that was on that you know, like more than like I think like more than 150 episodes of that. Oh produced, yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was thinking he was in Hogan's Heroes, but I must be getting that confused with Combat. <laughs> if he was, it must have just been a guest shot. Yeah, as yeah. possible, I suppose. But yeah, but um, so yeah, he's great in this as this kind of evil. Not quite sure what he is. Well, we can get into that when we get to the plot, I suppose. The only other person behind the scenes I wanted to mention was the, as I said at the beginning, the composer, mm-hmm. um, who is Walter Rizzati, and mainly films I've never heard of. But the one that I think we will know that he did was The House by the Cemetery. Yeah. So that's perhaps his other well-known score outside of outside of Italy. There are you know, there's loads of Italian films that we've probably never heard of, but of course yeah, that means he, he he shared a credit on that with the the screenwriter Dardendo Sacchetti, who wrote this who wrote the screenplays for House by the Cemetery and The Beyond, ah. and City of the Living Dead, and right, yes, yeah, of course, yeah. excellent stuff. So, uh, right, shall we get to some plot? I mean, it's not much of a plot. It's a pretty it's a pretty long. basic plot. Yeah, it's, it's great it's, though. It's it's all the so, plot that you need, but yeah, yeah. Uh, so I'm going to use the plot summary from the book, and what I like as well is the poster, the tagline, the first to die were the lucky ones, <laughs> which, again, doesn't really make sense. <laughs> it doesn't fit the film, you know, no. not really. Yeah, it doesn't work at all. The year, I should, I feel like I should be reading this in like a, a trailer voice, the year is 1990 i can't do it and we're in the united states we're in the bronx i can't it feels weird reading this not in an american accent as well 
I'm gonna. I'm just gonna plow on. Do Following it. the explosion of crime and violence rates, the Bronx is officially declared an unsafe neighborhood. By decree, the authorities have renounced rule by law and order, abandoning its streets to chaos and its inhabitants to themselves. Gangs now control the area. The two largest are the Tigers, led by the Ogre. Why is he called the Ogre? That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. He's more I like don't a king. Know. If somebody, when he meets, um, uh, what's his face later on, he calls him the king. So I don't know why he's called the Ogre. Uh, and the Ogre, his gang drive around in really nice classic cars mm-hmm. and kind of dress like, I don't know, how would you describe their. Well, they dress in, a, in 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 what I would call flashy classic style yeah. clothes. I mean, it's they basically dress like they're in a black exploitation film. Essentially, yeah. I mean, being they're led like by Fred Williamson fly. must. Yeah, being led by Fred Williamson as the ogre seems to have cascaded down to all of yeah. the fashion senses. So. Yeah, they are. They are dressed. They're dressed like Black Caesar meets Superfly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Fred Williamson because obviously he shot Black Caesar basically in the same place ten years earlier or whatever, however long it was. And he talked about shooting in the Bronx was really cool. He says, I have a lot of respect for that neighborhood. I also received a lot of help from the Hells Angels, who also offered me their respect. So, yeah, the Bronx was definitely cool. So um, I think the fact that he they all recognized him as Black Caesar was probably quite handy. Yeah. Well, that he, he was a remember, Fred, Fred Williamson was also a football star in the 60s. Well, yeah, so they're going to be star. members of that. They're going to yeah. be members of that motorcycle gang who remember him as the badass on the on the field as well. That's true, and I'm sure I read somewhere I can't remember where now about how the, when they were filming in the Bronx, they were having to kind of pay pay protection and stuff mm-hmm. to local gangs and to like local real gangs and all that to stop them from nicking their equipment and all that. I'm sure I read that one somewhere. Yeah. And uh, the, anyway, the, and, and they very smartly were able to get the you know the the Hell's Angels on their side, and so yeah, yeah, because they I mean they're clearly using a lot of local people mm-hmm. uh, while they're filming. Um, so yeah, and then you've got the Riders led by Trash, uh, young, massive uh, hero who's not afraid to have his bare chest out through the whole movie. <laughs> and why would why wouldn't you when you look as good as him? Yeah, yeah an incredibly <clears throat> so, handsome man. Yes, yeah, he's very good. And considering it, this was he'd never acted before. I mean, it's quite remarkable that he would be brave enough to take that on. That's got to be quite a big task. Mm-hmm. He project he projects well on screen. Yeah, 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 he does do well. Uh, so at nightfall, this is at right at the beginning of the movie. At nightfall, a little rich girl flees Manhattan and its glass castles she is let's get her name right here she is Anne, just plain old Anne, mm-hmm. um played by stefania goodwin or stefania uh, who is also stefania girolami, girolami yeah who, she's italian uh yeah and if i'm not completely wrong i think that's uh, isn't she um Enzo Castellari's daughter? Oh, is she? I think oh, I don't so. know. She oh, she, when you look at her credits, I think everything she's in is something he directed. <laughs> mm-hmm. So very possibly then, yeah. She's even in Sinbad. Oh, I know the thing that he had to yeah. he had to come in and attempt it. Yeah, I know. Yeah. 
No, uh, yeah. Actually, I spoke to Luigi Cozzi about that. That's something you need to listen to. We talked about Sinbad, and he cleared up the whole thing. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, good, good, good. But yes, you could be right there, actually. But it does. She's actually a director now. She mainly directs uh, Italian television. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, that kind of makes sense that she was not necessarily a professional actor based on based on her performance. Not wanting to be cruel, but she's she's the less interesting uh, person who takes up a lot of screen time in this well, film. Well, she's remember, she's also listed as an assistant director on this film and ah, uh, several other go. of her father's her yeah. father's projects. So. so she was quite busy. Mm-hmm. I mean, it makes sense if you, uh, especially traveling over to New York, to have her, if she's around and she can assist and direct and she can be in front of the camera, that just saves a bit of time and space and money, doesn't it? Very smart move. She's the heiress of the Manhattan Corporation, the largest arms manufacturing firm on the continent. I don't know, it's hilarious that they're called the Manhattan Corporation. I know. Um, it's, it's how much? It's like okay, we're already using the name the Bronx. How much? What, yeah. what what word can we use it as even more <laughs> identified with New York City? Ah, you know. Yeah, uh, so she's run off to the Bronx because she knows the police won't come in to look for her. And in a tunnel, she falls into the hands of a gang of roller skating hockey players. <laughs> Straight out of this the Warriors, is, yes. Yeah, our first novelty gang, although not the best novelty gang in the film. But hmm, yeah, Okay, but that's, an inter- that's an interesting conversation my, to have. Well, yeah. my favorite novelty gang are the uh, the tap dancers. Ah, well, okay. No, no, which okay. we don't no see argument, enough of. Yeah. You're right. I you're wanted right. to see more tap dance fighting. I think those guys are <laughs> hilarious. But while she's fighting, the she's being attacked by the roller skating hockey players. Rising from the shadows, Trash, leader of the riders, comes to her rescue. Da 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 da. That's basically the setup. Um, and then so we just he gradually she doesn't tell him who she is for a while. She just tells him she wants to stay. So he's like, yeah, great. And then the next time we see her, she's got her own motorbike. So it didn't take long. Yeah, there's a there's a there's a there's a bit of a leap there in the relationship yeah. <laughs> growth. Yeah. One minute she's like this scared little girl. Next shot, oh, she's got her own bike. Um, but then in another shot, she's riding in the back of someone else's bike. So I'm not quite sure what 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 the deal was there. But so this is the sort of setup that it turns out. Yeah, she's this rich heiress. And the Manhattan, the evil Manhattan Corporation want to get her back. So they hire Vic Moreau, who is like, it's kind of like ex-police or something. Um, although he seems to have, seems, I don't know what he yeah. is, but he seems to have control. He's able to, by the end of the movie, he's able to just bring in uh, mounted police. Which is very strange. Uh, yeah, I know. It's one with, of those things where he seems to still actually be yeah, affiliated so with the police. Yeah. And he's called Hammer, which made me laugh, given obviously this film has got Fred Williamson in it. Oh, I know, and and, and, and which is also yeah, that was that was Fred Williamson's nickname. Yeah, he was uh, the Hammer, wasn't he? Right, which is <laughs> is confusing. It wasn't confusing. It's not. It's not going to be confusing for people who are unaware of 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 much about Fred Williamson. But for anyone who is, you're going. Wait a minute. So he's called the yeah. Ogre, and there's another character yeah. called Hammer. What in hell is going on? <laughs> yeah. And he's got a friend who, so Hammer has got a friend who drives a big rig, mm-hmm. which for some reason he's decided he's going to use that as his getaway vehicle, like the most conspicuous massive truck riding through the Bronx. But Hammer's using this as his mobile base of operations. Yeah. 
and, it, and, and it, I think it, his the, his the, friend the, is called Hot Dog. I think yeah, that's his. Yeah, nobody has real names. <laughs> And no. <laughs> uh, the actor who plays Except Hot Dog is, is yeah, <laughs> the actor who plays Hot Dog is Christopher Conley, who's another you know he's just not, he's another act you know I you know hate to put it bluntly but he's another actual actor who's in this yeah. movie. Uh, he's a very familiar face. Mm-hmm. Uh, ben, he ben was one of the bajillion films. We'll encounter yeah. him again. We'll encounter we him again later on this this particular yeah. season. Yeah, yeah, he's just one of those guys who actor for hire he'll be in anything if you pay him oh, he, was in, he was in every television show that existed in yeah. the 70s and he's also one, he's, of my, uh, he's one of my one of my all time uh all time uh shameful loves which is a film i know is not good from 1978 called the norseman uh that stars oh, yeah. that stars lee majors and a bunch of football players as vikings it's uh i can't i wow. can't defend it i won't defend it but i have watched it more than i should but christopher Conley's in that yeah I know how you feel about Vikings. Yes, yes. There's, no, there's nothing wrong with that. It's it's you know it's hard to uh, it's hard to to defend it in any way, shape, or form. But yeah. uh, Christopher Conley, you know, fans of what we're what we're into would would notice that he sure. uh, he was in Lucio Fulci's film Manhattan Baby, uh, oh, yeah. and and you know he beside and, and like I say, we'll see him in uh, Atlantis Interceptors later yep. in the season, but. Uh, He's he's, yeah. he's 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 an actual good solid actor who yeah. was on screen in a zillion television episodes. And he's actually got quite a good role in this. He's not just one scene and done. He's he's all yeah. the way through pretty much. Yeah. Um so he's helping out Hammer because Hammer is paying him. Although he also seems to owe him a favor or something. Something. They have some kind of complex past that's not fully explored. Um and but, then the film, also, but the film seems to think that it is. I, that's the weird yeah. thing is there's there's this assumption made where it almost feels like there's a dropped line of dialogue somewhere yeah. that would make us understand exactly why he yeah. feels so compelled to stick around at times. I know, yeah. It's like, what are you doing? Just get out of here with your massive truck. Um, and also popping up later on in the film is the leader of the. It's it's really weird. So he's the, I think he's the leader of the hockey playing gang but he's dressed like some kind of Japanese samurai is, uh, is George Eastman yes. who, as we've talked about him, he's, he's popped up on the podcast before he would do anything because he was spending his money gambling as faster than he could earn it. <laughs> so he would turn up in any movie. You didn't matter. Is it, is it good? Doesn't matter. Is it porn? Don't care. Just do you, do, does the script does the script need a touch up, or do you need a script from from the yeah, bottom up? I'll write it. That's uh, fine. Here, here's how here's my, here's how much money I need to do that, and I will do that yeah. as well. Yeah. <laughs> he even directed, didn't he, George Eastman? You know, I'm not uh, sure. I know he. I know he definitely. Wrote I mean, we should a say films. Yeah. We should say his real name because he was credited as either George Eastman or Luigi Montefiore. Mm-hmm. And um, he's still alive and regularly pops up in interviews on um, on extras, which is nice. But yeah, he like you said, he wrote tons of stuff. Yeah. Um, but he has actually directed. Um, apparently, he uh, in fact, twenty twenty Texas Gladiators. He's he's one of the directors associated with that. So well, I yeah, he, I know he wrote. 2020 Texas Gladiators. He's listed as the writer on that under a pseudonym. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. I think he's, he's uncredited according. Well, according to the IMDb, which who knows how 
how accurate <laughs> that is. Um, I did just watch recently Caligula, The Untold Story, which he wrote. Uh, me too. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, he's written a whole, just a whole bunch of this stuff. He wrote the film, which is weirdly on YouTube in a terrible quality copy. He wrote the film uh, called Bestialita. Um, which is about a girl who is traumatized because she saw her mum having sex with the family dog. Oh my god! And then the the dad comes home, catches them at it, and then uh, locks the dog in the house and then burns the house down. <laughs> oh my god! That's the opening scene. It's that's that's like really? how it starts. Yeah, that's how it starts. Oh my god! Is, is the, that the film known as? Dog okay. lay afternoon, afternoon. apparently. Which, oh my god! Yes. Yeah, the Whew. the dad burns the house down in the opening credits. Anyway, <laughs> so that's so. This is so George Eastman, as you said, he would he needed the money. He'd do whatever he liked. It didn't matter. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, God bless him because it means he pops up in all kinds of interesting places. Yeah, thank goodness, and, and he's and he's always a welcome a, a welcome sight in any of these yes. movies. I mean, he was he was this very tall, athletic oh, man yeah. who project. You know, he talk about projecting well. There's a similar uh, there's a similar uh, form of of the camera kind of really being a good a good p- place for him to be in front of. Yeah. I mean, there's the, much like the, 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 you know, the, the way we talk about Mark Gregory in this, it's, it is a similar thing there with George Eastman. It's just that George Eastman, you know, either loved making films and being, in, yeah. being in front of the camera and behind it. Or as you, as we, as we both know, <laughs> that gambling problem, this was like, yeah. gotta have money, gotta have money, gotta have money. But he could be, you know, as well as doing all this kind of exploitation stuff, and you know, he, he was quite good at gurning um, when he needed to. But he could also actually be a very good actor. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, obviously, you know, we talked about him in the Poliziotesky season because of his role in um, *Rabid Dogs*. Yeah, and he's very good in that. Like properly, he's really acting, and he's very good. I, I've yeah, yeah. never seen George Eastman. I mean, he's he's a little over the top in this, but he's giving exactly what the Wait, what, the, what yes. the role requires. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, exactly. it's not as if he's doing something that stands out as as silly. No. You know, surrounded by other thespians. It's not that. Yeah. You know, he's he's doing what's required of him by the type of story being yeah. told. He's quite infamous in this country because he appeared in a couple of films that were on the um, the band video nasties list as oh, well. Oh really? Yeah, I guess well, yeah. I guess that has Abs- to be true, I think yeah. absurd absurd and anthropophagus were on the on the list. Mm-hmm. Well, you um, know, those are those are a couple <laughs> of uh, nasty little movies that he's yeah. at the center of, so. Yeah. <laughs> and we're going to see him at least two more times, I think, in this uh, in this season. But yeah, so he's the leader of that gang and at one point there's a fight between him and the ogre. Uh which of course the ogre is the hero, so we can probably guess how that goes. <laughs> but it's really weird that you've got this uh, ice hockey gang being led by a samurai. Doesn't none of it makes any sense? It's it's, but, it's um, almost there's a question that never that never <laughs> seems to be asked, which is you know how how were these costuming choices made? You I know, know yeah. Enzo, like, please tell us how this how this went down. You know, it's I mean it's basically like they watched the warriors and they went, yep, we'll have that one. We like that one. Oh, let's take that, but push it a bit more. Yeah. I mean, the, yeah. the tap dancing gang are just fabulous. 
and I would like to see more of them. It's disappointing that they're only in it for one scene. And they're led, again, like they're a tap, bunch of tap dancers, but they're led by a woman called The Witch for some reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's not She's not tap dancing. Um, she, but that, that, that actress is, is like a choreographer, and it's clear that yeah. she's a dancer in the, in the one yeah. scene that she's in. It's like this yeah. this, this woman knows what she's doing. You know? <laughs> and you just think, with the rest of the time, when they're not fighting, they're just churning out fabulous routines. Mm-hmm. Apparently um, so. That would be the training, so, right? Yeah. So Hammer is coming into the Bronx to try and rescue Anne. So Trash decides that what they're going to have to do is uh, team up with the Ogre to take down, because otherwise they're going to destroy the Bronx. I think that's basically what's good. they realized. They've all got to team up and put aside their petty squabbles uh, and territory issues in order to fight back so he just this is where it gets like the warriors and he's got to travel through the bronx aka the abandoned factories of rome mm-hmm. and uh which is, which is great i mean it's you know it's good uh it looks good on screen i'm sure at one point he's actually in roman ruins like there's none of <laughs> oh yeah well there's a great scene in the movie where if you listen to the commentary track with castellari and his son uh it's really great because uh it's the scene where they um uh, where they burn the 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 the, uh, the two dead bodies that uh, Vic, oh, yeah. you know, the, the the two people that Vic Morrow kill on the staircase yeah. with a shotgun, where yeah. they uh, where they kind of Viking funeral them and in in Casillari actually is sitting there watching, saying, "Okay, so, you know, he starts going. Okay, he says this this shots in the Bronx, this shots in Rome, this shots in the Bronx, this shots oh, in yeah. Rome, and it's yeah. this brilliant editing it's back and forth good. and back and forth, and it yeah. all looks like it's all taking place in one shot because he yeah. knew what he was doing as a director, and it just and if he wasn't sitting there doing it, you would just assume that all of this was shot in yeah. one location, but it wasn't. It's it's really it's really it's amazing. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the Bronx stuff that is clearly the Bronx, it was so run down. Mm-hmm. And there are buildings that are just burned out and trashed and there's piles of rubble everywhere. But then they do a really good job of intercutting that with roaming around abandoned factories in Rome uh, for a lot of the other stuff. And they sort of, yeah, like you said, they cut between the two. The sequence when, um, I don't I don't know, I don't, I don't think we're spoiling it too much, but towards the end, Hammer brings in the um, the big guns, which is actually mounted police yeah. with flamethrowers. Yeah, and the flamethrower effects there well are clever as hell. I mean, is it safe to have a flamethrower on a horse? That was my first question. Um, like, what are they doing? They've honestly, got, probably not. No, <laughs> they've got horses running through abandoned factories full of holes in mm-hmm. the floor, and there's somebody on the back firing flames off uh, extras. It just seems mad, whilst Vic Moreau stands at the top laughing insanely. Mm-hmm. Like, you, yeah, it's really quite impressive. Um, but yeah, like you said, the, the the combination of Rome shooting and and Bronx shooting is very well done. But um, yeah, he they they sort of travelling through. And they meet all these different gangs. There's one gang who apparently have reverted back to some kind of primitive state, mm-hmm. and they just communicate in grunts and all wear sack. <laughs> Which was yes. really weird. <laughs> it, it, I know, and they they paint themselves in some bizarre tribal fashion. It's strange, yeah. And yeah, so there's just lots of fighting, different gangs. Is Trash going to convince the ogre to join him? Well, you know, probably. probably. But still, you know, let's, but let's, let's not it's give just, it away. Yeah, I love it. It's so good. 
Well, um, I, I, I got to tell you this. This is this is this kills me. There's um, so I'm <clears throat> I am making my poor beloved Beth watch this with me <laughs> about a week ago. <laughs> I would I would say lucky Beth. Uh, well, you know, she did end up enjoying it. Don't get me wrong, but oh, good, she good. has she's she's a great barometer for what a normal audience member would be thinking. And of course, one of one of the things I can't I, I don't remember them all. I, I should have written more of them down, honestly. But there were there were points at which where what she what she was saying is just a normal logical thing. Which it, my first is which she she says, "Wait, we're in New York City. Why aren't these idiots carrying guns?" <laughs> where oh, yeah. are the guns why aren't they ca- well, carting guns around and it's like yeah yeah i mean what they seem to be getting across without stating it is that there's been some kind of lockdown on guns so it's difficult for the gangs to get their yeah. hands on those kind of weapons and that's why the cops are the ones who when they come in they're actually wielding guns and they're they're so devastating but well, in the in the poster um well in the american poster uh trash is wielding some kind of massive uh, semi-automatic or something oh, but I yeah see. I know what you yeah. mean Let, in the sequel I think in Escape from the Bronx there's more actual shooting around isn't there? there's more gunfire between the I think they have got guns in that one but yeah that is a very good point yeah and, and it's, it's, it's like, almost it's gone kind of feudal like a bit sort of medieval mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and it's not uh, like, like I say they're, they're, they're trafficking heavily in in kind of what was uh, what was true in uh, escape from new york which was you know those people in there in general didn't have guns because if they had guns for a while after a few years they didn't have any ammunition they didn't have the ability to repair those things you know they, they didn't That's have true. the things necessary to maintain that as a bit of the the kind of criminal infrastructure of the place which okay that would make sense no problem gotcha but here it's just you know can you can you, can you drive down to new jersey and get you some guns yeah. i mean just well it, yeah it seems like they can't get off that isn't it isn't suggested but it seems like they can't leave the bronx yeah yeah it seems um, like there's some kind of I some mean, way that they are being yeah. kept from ex, from exiting so but if it's never made completely clear yeah if only trash knew somebody who was about to inherit a fortune because she was the heiress of the largest arms manufacturing firm in america Hmm, talk about a thread that never gets pulled. Yeah. 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 And then yeah, she could have got them all the weapons they wanted and had a really big shootout finale that they couldn't afford, I suppose. Of course the other <laughs> the other brilliant thing that Beth pointed out at a certain point was okay, so uh not giving any you know, not giving too much away here, but at a certain point, uh Trash enlists Ogre and his uh, main badass female henchman, the whip wielding uh, lady. Oh yes, she's cool. She's What's amazing. Her name? I've forgotten. Well, was she the witch? No, she wasn't the witch, was she? I for- oh, was she. I forget which one she oh, is. Oh yeah, she was. She was referred to as uh, as. Is the she witch. the witch? Yeah. Oh, yeah. sorry. Yeah, she's the witch. Yeah. The, it was somebody else that led the um, the tap dancers. Then, anyway, yeah, I can't remember the. Yes, you're right. Oh. So she was the witch. And she's uh, dressed like she's going to some kind of S and M party. <laughs> yes, yes. And she, this was her only film, which is a shame because she she really is fun in this movie. She's yeah, a, she's a blast. But nevertheless, yeah. so at one point, you know, the three of them are threading their way through, uh, you know, the the ruins of the Bronx, going you know going on their uh, going on their uh, their trip there, and Beth Beth is going. Why are there just the three of them? I mean, the, the I Fred Williamson has else. like 
two dozen people. Why aren't why aren't there like more people going with them? And I just, I because just because they they were in New York and the other three were in Rome. Yep, pretty much. That's that's the way it goes, unfortunately. Yeah, but the, uh, the yeah. Fred Williamson's gang in New York had all brought their own clothes, um, so they didn't have it. They didn't have those costumes in Rome to give to some other locals to try and pretend that they were part of the same gang. Probably not. Yeah, actually, I just found in the book I, I mentioned before about the trouble they had on the set, and I might have been wrong there. So I just want to clarify that before we finish. In according to the book, uh, it says that when they were filming in New York. Um, the police were supervising but they were the police basically monitored the proceedings from the interior of their cars mm-hmm. so there were there were police keeping an eye on the shoot but they didn't get out their cars they just right. sat in the cars and watched well, Castellari um, tells the funny story of you know the cops <laughs> when the cops would get out to like go get some coffee or to get their lunch they would like carry their shotguns with them oh uh, yeah i can imagine yeah and there's, I mean, there's some good stuff. Although the police are not allowed into the Bronx, or they don't, they've just left it in the movie. But there, are, there's one scene. There's a couple of scenes where the police are flying over with their helicopter, and they're like, and then there's another scene where the police are driving through in a kind of armored van, and a member of Trash's gang um, jumps onto the back of the van and then spray paints graffiti on the window. But it all feels. Although obviously the film is set in 1990, that's only that was only like nine years away from when they were shooting. Yeah, and it must have felt for many people, especially if you were in the audience in a cinema in the Bronx watching this film, it must have felt like it was actually quite a good kind of commentary on what life was like for people who lived there, and that kind of antagonism with local law enforcement and all that stuff. Honestly, it feels like a really great little window into uh, the er- early 80s Bronx as a as kind of a... I, there's no way to refer to it as, as a documentary, but it is this amazing way of seeing this stuff without it being, you know, linked in with, you know, some kind of news or documentary footage. It's it's mm. it's what was really there and that the reason the, they're they're there filming in the first place is because it looks that way. So it's kind of yeah. it's kind of fascinating. It is this great shots of New York and great shots of Manhattan across the river. Mm-hmm. Um my favorite scene, I think you mentioned it briefly, is when a member of Trash's gang has been killed by the Ogre's gang, the Tigers. And they kind of meet. The two gangs meet. You've got all of the bikers. And they're they're all lined up in this kind of really cool zigzag formation. All the bikes, all the Hells Angels. And then all these classic cars come in with all these guys in their great suits. And the whole scene is underscored by just a guy playing the drums in the corner. Yeah, of who's this kind of patch of wasteland. Apparently that's just his his location to like play the yeah. drums for a good long but he while just, yeah. he just drums all the way through this whole thing and the, the way that it's shot and edited the scene starts with these brilliant close-ups of him playing and it intercuts close-ups of him and dr- the drums with close-ups of Trash and the gang, it's such a great sequence and I, I would like every dramatic moment in my life <laughs> to be accompanied by a drummer in the corner of the, just just free free uh, playing away in the corner just it's as an so under, just as an underscore yeah, yeah yeah exactly just providing some rhythmical accompaniment to my uh, problem 
moments. But yeah, I love that. It's so kind of random. Just there's a, just a, a drummer in the wild. It reminds me, and I don't know whether Casalari did this on purpose, but in Jean-Luc Godard's Weekend, there is a scene where, because I watched this when I was at college and it always stuck with me. There's a scene where they're walking through the woods, uh, these kind of rebels in the woods with their weapons, and there's a really cool drum beat on the soundtrack, and you're just like, oh yeah, presuming this is just part of the soundtrack. But they're walking along, and the camera just pans, and there's a drummer in the trees, <laughs> and then the, and they just walk past, and it just keeps panning, and you're like, hang on, what? Why is that guy what in the trees playing the drum? Um, yeah, it's kind of like when is it in? It's in Blazing Saddles. Mel brooks does the same gag with count basie and his orchestra yeah where you hear this great score and the camera pans across and there's just count basie and his orchestra in the desert where the music goes from non-diegetic to diegetic and i i really like that that's sort of i don't know if what exactly was on the minds of castellari who or whoever's idea this was to just have a drummer in the corner but it's so <laughs> it's so great it just adds a whole new interesting dimension to that entire encounter and it means that the editing is on all the close-ups and everything they very it's, it fits to the rhythm it's almost it's like a kind of it's like jazz almost jazz mm-hmm. editing it's great I, I really like it um it's one of the things that for me makes this film stand out is that because it didn't have to you know, that didn't have to be there the drummer didn't have to be part of that scene at all it, but it makes no bearing on the plot at all but it just makes it so cool. Mm-hmm. It's it's an it's another little element that just adds to. You're right. The 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 cool factor is probably the best way to put it. Yeah. Yeah, and I play the drums myself, so I maybe I'm maybe that's another reason why I pick up on that. No, but, no. Uh, I mean, it stands out in this film. It it is something that's hard to miss. If you're, you know, it's, yeah. it's 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 amazing. Um, it's very cool. Before we leap away from this, I do want to point yeah. out that uh, I've kind of held this in reserve because this to me was a truly shocking bit of information as I delved into the cast and crew of this film. There's a character we haven't spoken about. Oh, go um, on. Uh, uh, who's known as Ice. In oh, the yeah. movie. He is great. Uh-huh. Well, he's played by an actor named Joshua Sinclair. Now... Yeah, what I like, just uh, maybe you're going to mention this, but I like the fact that the rest of the gang have all got long hair and look like bikers. And then he's got just like short hair and glasses and looks like he's an accountant for the gang the rest of the time. Yes, exactly. <laughs> he's, and he's he well, here's the thing. Um he is a unique individual because not only oh. was he what did he act in about uh, two dozen films and television projects over the years. I mean, he was he was in Inglorious Bastards and Heroin Busters and Hitchhike and right. Kioma oh, okay. and the Big Racket. So obviously, he and Castellari were were big buddies. He had a, he had a yeah. role in Lady Frankenstein in early, in the early seventies. But the real shock is that he appears to have been an actual no joke medical doctor. Oh. Yeah, uh, that okay. uh, who uh, specialized in tropical diseases. He appears to have worked, uh, at least in affiliation, uh, with Mother Teresa a, a couple of times uh, in Calcutta and Bombay, as well in wow. various parts of Africa. 
uh, okay. may, may have been, from what I can read in a couple of different places, uh, a professor in comparative theology at one point. <laughs> worked worked with several nonprofits, which is where the you know the the Calcutta and Bombay stuff came into play. But he also was a novelist. He wrote Whoa. movies. He ended up producing movies. He ended up writing and directing a movie that was uh, a, called A Rose in Winter that came out in 2018. Oh right, okay. uh, which which recounts the story of Edith Stein. Uh, won awards for that. It's cons- it is very highly regarded as a, a a solid good movie. He wrote and directed it. Uh, just it's kind of astonishing when you look at this guy who's playing this nasty bad guy in this movie yeah. <laughs> with his Nazi uh, regalia. Yeah, but as far as films are concerned, apparently he wrote. Uh, wow, okay. He he wrote Shaka Zulu for television. Uh, he wrote Just a Gigolo in seventy eight. Uh, uh, Judgment in Nuremberg, or I'm sorry, not ju- Judgment in Berlin from 1988. He's credited for having written the screenplay for that. Um, it's a little odd. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's wow. one of, you don't expect. I mean, clearly he was paying attention while he was making movies, while he was doing yeah. the acting that he did uh, in the in the uh, especially in the 80s. So he learned uh, apparently worked pretty regularly was a published novelist and um what what can you say joshua sinclair hidden talents in wow, this guy interesting yeah very, I, I mean, very, very the, strange yeah the thing that just stuck out for me was how he didn't look like he really fitted in with the gang at all <laughs> but uh, that's actually the least interesting thing about him how cool yeah there you go very just, strange just, very strange to, to see something like that turn up yeah, where you're you just never know. yeah. I mean, he's, and he and he was you know he was uh, he was an American. He was apparently a New York City native. So uh, what at what at whatever point in the uh, the 70s when he hooked up with uh, you know when he started making you know films <laughs> when he started being an actor uh, the the first the first credit of his is uh, a, a, Victor, uh, a Vittorio De Sica film. Uh, gardens, uh, the, what the garden of the the, the Finney Contini's, Finzi Contini's. I, I've never seen the film. Line. I know the name. Oh, okay, uh, but yeah, that I, I'm wondering if he was just a, a film nut and decided to to start playing around in it, and that's how he yeah. ended up in a bunch of different roles. I don't know, but he seems like an incredibly fascinating man. Wow. Well, and you know, just for being in Lady Frankenstein, he would earn our <laughs> undying respect. Exactly. That's really funny. Well, there you go. That's a good positive note to uh, to end on. So do join us next time where we will be moving forwards from 1990 to the year 2020 Ooh. with the Texas Gladiators, which... <laughs> Uh, and then we're going to be which is 1983 which is where we will be for quite a long time but it wasn't a bad year so that's well no but i mean the 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 real joy and and this is something i wonder if this is uh this is how you think of this for me the real meat of the 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 italian post-apocalyptic stuff is anything that is really trying to ape the road warrior uh yeah don't get me wrong i love it when they they try to ape the warriors and escape from new york as well but as soon as we're out in the desert uh, yep. you know driving cars really fast in a reckless fashion 
I'm pre- yeah. I'm I'm pretty happy, and uh, I'm 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 lo- I'm loving it just on the basis of those elements alone. So uh, I think for the rest of this season, we're kind of comfortably in that area, yeah. mostly not completely, but mostly. Yeah, so. the apocalypse. The apocalypse has truly happened by uh, for most of the rest of the season. That's yeah. true. Yeah. Well, thank you everybody for listening. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us. Um, we do have an email, which I have to confess I haven't actually looked at for about three months. Oh my goodness! So if if you've emailed us and I haven't replied, that's why. But I now that I've said this out loud, I will actually have a look. <laughs> you will um, be you will be shamed into checking. Yeah. <laughs> but we're also on Twitter. That's the main way to to get in touch with us, or also on Instagram. All the links are in the show notes. Um, if you want to buy us a virtual coffee, you can also do that. And we just yeah we just like to hear from you basically if you've got favourite post apocalypse films then uh, we'd like to know what those are as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's all from me, Rod. Anything you want to add before we finish? No, I just like to thank everybody for tuning in. I, I, I am I, I I do get the occasional little nod from people here and there saying that they enjoy the show and that there's oh, certain there's certain films that they're that they're happy to have someone discussing one way or the other. And I have the feeling that this particular season we're in the middle of will be, uh, will be one that will, uh, will garner a good deal more attention as well, just because of the, the, the extreme popularity of this particular strange genre. Yeah, exactly. And there, and, and particularly with some of the later ones, they're fairly obscure and not that many people probably make the effort to talk about them in any kind of recorded setting so <laughs> so we're definitely hopefully we're we're, we're producing some uh, some vital work here on these neglected films but obviously not this one everyone knows this film but apparently anyway, yeah. i'm getting ahead of i'm getting getting ahead of ourselves here i'm mainly thinking of a man called rage and the final executioner if i'm honest well but I, uh, I, i've got to say <laughs> when i look at that list of the films that we're going to be you know that we're going to be messing around with um I, uh, I there that a man called Rage is the one that stood out as me not being able to recall if I've seen it. So yeah, oh good. I'm glad. It's always good if we can get at least one of those. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> anyway, right. Thanks everybody for listening, and we will be back again soon in the future. <laughs> Bye for now. Bye everyone. up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.